Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, March 19th, 2022. Right now, once again, it is Wednesday morning, and we have our friend Trufids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 74 of these presentations. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This is also now part four, and hopefully the final part of our discussion of the Hebrew language and its relationship to the languages of Europe, which for us is mostly limited to English, along with some Latin and Greek. Eventually, we hope to add many more entries for those and other languages to this list, as soon as we can afford the significant amount of time it would require to continue this study. However, for now, we certainly hope to have already demonstrated that many common everyday words, which are found in each of these languages, are similar or even identical to Hebrew words in both sound and meaning. I'm going to summarize some of these words here this morning. There will always be skeptics. However, the implications of the evidence which we have offered here cannot be overlooked, especially once they are considered along with the cultural similarities and historical links between these same nations. As we had exhibited the connections or the affinities between the Greek and Hebrew cultures, the ancient Greek and Hebrew cultures, perhaps several weeks ago in a proof here. The affinities between the languages of the ancient Israelites and the nations of Europe go far beyond the fact that those nations use the same so-called Phoenician alphabet. These languages must be directly related and were even derived or descended from Hebrew, albeit with other ancient influences. So here we shall continue that discussion. Hello, Truthfids. Once again, thank you for being here. Hey, Bill. Thanks, Randy. Uh, yes. Yeah, so here we can continue with the words. Uh, hopefully we can finish this week, right? Originally we thought it'd be one podcast. It's ended up being four, but we'll see how it goes, right? Um, I didn't really have much to say about, you know, anything else apart from that. Uh, all I could say really is that I've almost, uh, finished a hundred proofs, the video form 11 to 20. And hopefully I can speed up now and start releasing one a week or one every two weeks to uh, get the video summaries out as well. So I'm gradually catching up, but um, probably won't be done until, you know, a few weeks at least after we finish this series at least. But, yeah, um, thanks for having me, Bill. Uh, Shall we continue then? Yes, absolutely, because like you, I want to get through this today. We thought we would get through this last week and and these last two pages of this list because page five is rather short. But there was no no way that we could do it. First, I thought to make a summary list of all of the basic words which we have already presented, which are at least nearly identical in Hebrew and English, and repeat them as an introduction to this final part of our presentation. However, I realize that that also may take too long to serve that purpose here. So I made an even shortened, an even shorter list. Although some readers may have different opinions concerning both these 
and the words which I did not include here, they simply all can't be dismissed. So, in our first two lists, we have words such as ash, day, ban, batter, bear, bore, booth, dash, deem, dumb, grope, growl, hammer, halo, and hook. Then, from the second list, harass, sod, as you sod something, as you boil it, cable, cage, core, coop, cupola, carrot, tame, tor, T-O-R, which is a, a high rocky hill or, or mountain, tumor, term, yell, year, yeah, yes, cave, cavity, cell, clap, love, live, liver, light, laugh, lick, and lash. These words all stand out as being cognates with Hebrew words with an extremely similar sound and the same meaning. From our third list, the words which stand out the most are, in my opinion, mare, at a female horse, marry, more, mo, make, machine, mechanic, mat, matter, mute, mutate, mutter, metal, minute, minus, minor, mince, minimum, mint, money, manor, M-A-N-O-R, manse, like a mansion, massacre, mirror, mirage, marshal, <coughs> marshal is the Hebrew word meaning to rule over, and that's what a marshal does, near, Nigh, as in near. Naked, negate, negative. Nag, nail, N-A-I-L. No, nude, neuter, nasal, nose, nozzle. Natal, N-A-T-A-L, as in birth. Nation, nature, nurture, knock, as in knocking something. Nausea, nauseate, nautical, fall, fail. Secure, soothe, sore, S-O-R-E, sour, suit, as a suit of clothing, chafe to chaff, chafe to scrape something, same, symbol, similar, abide, abide, as in staying or remaining, angus, order, attire, I, amiable and amicable, and that's a lot of words that are basic English words. Finally, from the fourth part of our list, the words which stand out are a mass, mass, neck, rack, reckon, wreck, W-R-E-C-K, erect, arid, arrears, power, portal, port, pack, package, pan, pain, panel, pick, pinnacle, pass, Pace, pause, pose, pummel, part, parse, park, paradise, pear, as the fruit, parent, preside, president, presbyter, prate, parrot, prattle, breach, break, parish, parse, purse, portion, pot, patent, path, Seed, side, sacred, sec, as in being dry, sack, see, sign, and call. Call is 
very out of place alphabetically in this list because the Hebrew word which is cognate to it begins with a Q instead of a C, right? And of course, some of these words may have had intervening steps in Greek or Latin, which affected the modern English forms, but certainly not many of them. Many of them are cognates in English and Hebrew, but they are not cognate with any known Greek or Latin word. Furthermore, many of these words are so rudimentary and of such antiquity in our English language that they must have evolved directly into English from ancient Hebrew. Now, this short list we have just offered contains 160 words, and, of course, there are many more. I I have a summary of what we are about to present in my notes with a list of about 40 more words, and I'm not going to present that here because we're actually going to discuss the words themselves to complete this presentation as we began it. But these words alone prove that our contentions have substantial substance, as these are all very basic English words. I should say, perhaps, our assertions rather than contentions, that they are attentions because mainstream scholars, and and especially Jewish scholars, simply scoff at this information. They scoff at all these similarities, for the most part. They marginalize even Jews who have written about them, as we have discussed in earlier presentations. Now we shall begin in the middle of our fourth list with the Hebrew words numbered by Strong's Concordance as 6972 and 7032 which are transliterated as Kutz, or Q-U-W-T-S, by Strong, and Ketz, or Q-E-T-S. And we see once again that that Vav doesn't necessarily have to be in the word in order to make the, the, the appropriate sound. Kutz, Q-U-W-T-S, is defined primarily as to clip off. And Ketz, Q-E-T-S, is an extremity. And when we consider words like that, <clears throat> we have to imagine the broader sense of words sometimes, where an extremity is often something that is clipped off, right? When you cut your hair, you're cutting all the ends of your hair. When you cut your nails, you're cutting the ends of the fingernails. So, so sometimes we need to think of words in broad terms in order to see how they developed and what words they are cognate with. So this word, coots, means to clip off. And if you remove that vav, it's the English word cuts. It's the same sound, and it has the same precise meaning. And cats without the vav, Strong's number 7093, is an extremity. So we see that those two words are definitely related in Hebrew, and one of them doesn't have that vav, and 
obviously, it was dropped as the word evolved in English. I don't know if you have anything that you want to talk about before we, before I just surge ahead with the rest of this list. Yeah, I'd just say that the, the, the vowels there, um, that there are guests usually, aren't they, like that? cuts or kets it, it could be either way and i think yeah you're right it's just exactly the same to go um cut uh you know harvest trim off the uh good stuff and then eventually evolves you, you just use it to cut anything right cut that in half uh cut your hair etc right well, well right and and even in english sometimes that o vowel has a sound that's a hair's breadth away from the aval in in many words that they they could actually be mistaken and mistaken by a hearer not by a writer and here we have cuts and cats these vowels did not exist in hebrew they are not represented in the spelling of the word in hebrew and it's the transliterators <clears throat> the people like strongs or like the rabbinical Jews, the Masoretic Jews, who added all of the vowel points to the Hebrew language in the Middle Ages that had basically guessed at which vowel should be in the spelling of a word, or perhaps that they were subjective in using the sound in their own dialect of what we can call Hebrew. It's not quite Yiddish yet. In the Middle Ages, in the early medieval period, when the Masoretes were writing, right? It, it's not quite Yiddish yet, but it is a, a dialectal, dialectally evolved sort of Hebrew that's definitely not original Hebrew, and they added all those vowels in. So Strong, <clears throat> I would say Strong and Jesenius and other lexicographers were probably following the Masoretic vowel points, but they're just, as you said, they're just guesses. That that whether we spell this word with, with a Q U W T S or a Q E W T S, it's just a guess, and and that's true of every single Hebrew word where the vowel is not represented, and sometimes an aleph or a yod might stand as a vowel, and I believe that those letters and a couple of others were actually consonantal vowels. They they stood for vowels or consonants at various times. But this E in cats and the U in cuts are not represented in the Hebrew alphabet. It's just Q and then Vav and and then the T S which is probably a sadi character, and then there's just the Q and the TS in cats. There is no vowel. And that's true in almost every one of these words, because some of them, the the, the A might be represented by an Aleph on, on rare occasion, and the I or a Y could be represented by a, by a, a Yod. But even then, very often, the trend the transcribers, men like Strong's, Strong, James Strong, that transliterated these words, even then, they usually add a vowel, where you see like, consonant I, Y, consonant, 
So they still add that I in there, even when it's not represented in Hebrew. That might be a long digression, but it should be explained. If I haven't already, I probably have already, I don't, in earlier weeks, in the last few weeks. So the next word is 6965. And it's, it could be pronounced kum or simply kum. It's q, u, and the u once again is a guess. And a w, which represents the vav, and an m. So it's q, w, m. Kum, and it means, or kum, if you will, it, it means to rise. And I would assert that that's from where we have our English word come. Which means to come here, but it can also, when someone comes, in the wider sense of the word, we can often write, when so-and-so arose, or when so-and-so rises. When the sun rises, it comes. It comes to us, right? From the other side of the globe. Not the plane, I'm sorry. 6983. Kosh, or Kausch. It's Q-O-W-S-H. Kausch is to set a trap, and I would assert that that's cognate with the English word catch, which is what we do with a trap. 7070, 7070, Kana, Q-A-N-E-H, is a reed as being erect or a rod, and that's related to 7013, Cain, which is also a related word to the Cain of Genesis, of the, the early Genesis accounts. But this isn't his meaning. The meaning of his name, which is to get or to acquire, is not an issue here. It's very clear in many places in Scripture that 7013 Cain, Q-A-Y-I-N, is a lance. And... Then there's another word that I added here, and that's because of the English word canon. And that could have evolved into Latin, actually, because it's related to a Latin term in for several reasons, for one of two reasons. And that's 3653. Ken. It's K-E-N, and it means a stand i.e. a pedestal or station. And I'll explain my reasons for that momentarily. But this word cane meaning a lance. And I believe that comes from the idea of a canna, which is a reed, as a, a long, thin reed that was used to be a rod, right? Often reeds were used to make rods or to make or to measure things with and it's quite clear in several places in scripture that a reed was used to measure things with in Ezekiel chapter 40 verse 3 and we have and the measuring reed and he stood in the gate Ezekiel having his temple vision, we see that a reed was used to measure distances and things like that. Shorter distances, of course. So, 
that measuring reed, that word reed is the same word canna, Q-A-N-E-H, which is a reed. And I, I gathered that they took reeds and, and they made yardsticks out of them and rulers and used them to measure things, just like we take a piece of wood, or, or today it's usually a piece of plastic, right? Molded plastic. But originally yardsticks were made of wood. So, a cane is a lance, and a can with a K instead of the Q, 3653, is a stand, for example, a, a pedestal or a station, right? So, we have a Greek word, canna, which is a reed. And people would say, well, that's a loan word. But, no, I would dispute that. I would say it's a cognate word. And... If the Greeks didn't have their own word for read, how do you require the language of a foreign country, a word from a foreign country? How do you need that to describe one of the single most basic elements of your own environment? You don't need a word from a foreign country to describe a read. Reads were around. If if the Greeks were a totally unrelated people from the Hebrews, and they sat on the shores of the Aegean Sea, where I'm sure there are plenty of reeds in diverse places, and never had a word for a reed until the Hebrews came along, then they were pretty damn stupid. <laughs> but if the Greeks had this word canna, which happens to be exactly the same as the Hebrew word for read, and it's just spelled a little differently, then we see a relationship between Greek and Hebrew. And that's the case with every one of these words that are the same in Greek as they were in Hebrew, and we presented many of them. So the Greeks also had a verb. They they had a word canon that was spelled with a K, but they had a verb kenteo, K-E-N-T-E-O, which is to prick, and kentron, which is a point, and they must be cognate with this word kain, Q-A-Y-I-N, which is a lance. And I believe that idea may have come from the kana, which is the reed. And then in English, we have our word cane, which I'm sure if I inquired into the dictionaries, they would say it came from the Greek word kana. But I would insist that it probably is a separate cognate that, like many of these other Greek words, happens to be cognate in Greek also, happens to have a, a, a partner, a relative in Greek also, and that the English came from the Hebrew. And then there's the word canon, C-A-N-O-N, and I would insist that that's a cognate with canna, a reed, because canon is to measure something, and, and the books of canon were measured by the ancient Hebrews, the apostles of Christ, and ancient Christians to determine whether or not they belong in the scripture. But a canon, that word canon may also be related to ken, which is a stand, a pedestal, or a station, because the canon is a stand. It stands, and that's what our faith is founded on. So so it contains 
both of those ideas, in my opinion. But I would say it was probably more likely to be derived from cano, which is a reed, because that was used for measuring. And the cannon is more or less measured, in my opinion. I don't know if you have any remarks or thoughts. Yes, yeah, so where um, Cain met a lance, do you think that's from where um, he was a metal worker or his race? The Kenites were metal workers, as in they made weapons or they used lances to forge, forge uh, you know, metal works. Is, is, do you think that would be uh, where, well, where the meaning comes from? That's where I believe the meaning comes from, but the first lances were probably made of, of wood, and you can, for diverse reasons, Maybe it's not a good thing to use it in war, but you can fashion a lance from a reed and use it for things other than war because it wouldn't be as sturdy as a lance made of metal, of course, or even of wood. 7121, Kara, is to call out. And 7123, Kara, is to call or to cry. The Greeks had a verb, krazo, which is to croak, to scream, or to shriek. Now, that word kara, these, both of these words have that little apostrophe at the end. So I'm sure, I, I didn't look them up anew in, in the Strong's Concordance to see the Hebrew spelling, but I'm sure that that represents the iron character. I, I, in fact, I'm looking at it. And it does. It does represent the iron character. I, I just looked it up. It's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. And it has the... No. I'm sorry. It doesn't have the iron character. It ends with an Aleph. It's three letters in Hebrew. So I don't know why Strong's made that apostrophe, because it sort of indicates that there's a sound at the end that might be represented by that Z in the Greek krazo. But it ends with an Aleph. Now, we don't really know how the ancient Hebrew Aleph was pronounced if it had any consonantal sound to it at all when it ended a word. But it ends this word, and we know that the Aleph evolved into the vowel letter that we know as A, or Alpha. So, that that's a question, but I don't know why Strong's ended a lot of these words that end in Aleph with that apostrophe. Probably because of some rabbinical vowel point that represents some consonantal sound, if I had to guess, but I shouldn't guess. So... Krazo, I would still say, is cognate with kara. It means to croak, to scream, to shriek, or to cry aloud. And the Greeks have another word, krage, which is a crying or screaming. And in English, from kara or kara, I believe, we have the English words croak, cry, and crow from the sound that a crow makes. We have that English word crow. If I say you were crowing about something, it, it means that you were 
complaining about it, I believe, or, or going on and on about something. So we're basically crying about it. 7149. Kyria, Q-I-R-Y-A-H, is a city. Carthage, the, the, Romans had reduced that word to a C-A-R. Kyria becomes Carthage. The word, the name of the city, Carthage, actually comes from two Hebrew words, which mean new city. But the car comes first. City new, right? The way the adjective is placed in various languages different than English, we usually put the adjective first. But the Greeks and, and Hebrews often put it second after the noun. So Carthage comes, the first part, C-A-R, comes from this word, Kyria, new city it means. So Kyria is a city. The Greeks had a word, Kora, which is the space in which a thing is. And Corion is a place or a post or a fortified post or even an estate or a space which is enclosed. And that's what a city is. It's a space which is enclosed. The ancient cities all having walls, typically. So I believe that those words are cognates, but I don't have an English cognate, except for the ones that we know were taken from Greek, right? That, that aren't really related to this concept, like choreography and things like that, right? So, so Bill, that's interesting that a city had the name Yahweh inside it, right? It must be two words originally, right? Kur must have meant something, and Kurya meant a city, right? That yeah, the, the Israelites obviously uh, saw a town as being blessed by Yahweh. But that's interesting. The Greeks and Romans also, when they set up colonies, they had to have a... Um, a temple first and had to have a sacrifice uh, to the gods to prove that that um, settlement would actually do well, right? And if it was bad omens, it meant they believed it would be a disaster. But, but maybe they uh, had that came from the Israelites, right, that they believed that it was all down to Yahweh, but it got corrupted into the pagan gods, right? Right, well, I'm I'm not positive about the association because that A-H is simply often just a feminine ending I, I would have to examine I'm looking for the word in, in in the way it's used in scripture so I could see the transliteration of it I might have to go to my concordance because I can't find it in city I keep getting ear which is a different word for city and it doesn't have the key on the front it's basically spelled in English as I-Y-R so that that's a much more common word for city in scripture. Ah, uh, yeah, saying it's from the from strong seven one three six kara, which means to encounter meet before, like the root word. Right. So it's sort of indirectly related. But I'm going to look this word up now. Seventy one forty nine. I actually went and reached on my shelf, I was able to reach it without taking my headset off, right? I didn't have it on my desk for this. I probably should have if I'd have thought about it. Okay. Kirya, it's spelled sometimes where it ends with an A-left. It's the 
Kaf and the Resh and the Yad, which is Q-R-Y, and then an Aleph is one spelling of the word, and the other spelling, and the spelling that I have here, is Q-I-R-Y-A-H, because after the Yad is a the letter Ha, which is not a Heth, right? The Heth is like the hard C-H sound, and the Ha is the softer H sound. Apparently, the Hebrews had two letters to represent each of them, and that ends in the He, Kiryah. But the vowel, it is, of course, disputable, but it does end in Yad and He, but that's a an alternate spelling, right? So, take that for what you will. The last two letters are Yad He, and that's the first part of the name we know as Yahweh, which is often shortened to Yah, right, in, in the Psalms, in, in poetry. Keren, Q-E-R-E-N, and both of those vowels are, both of those vowels are guesses. It doesn't necessarily have to have that second E at all, and that's because there's another word, the dual form is carnaim, Q-A-R-N-A-Y-I-M. And that's a dual form, and, and I would like to just make a, a brief digression about the dual form. The ancient Hebrew language has three grammatical numbers for their nouns, and the number of a noun is whether it's singular or plural in English. That's called the number. So, the Hebrews had a third form that represented a dual, meaning that there are two of something. So they had single, dual, and plural. They had three numbers on their nouns. And I've heard, I, I had some contention from somebody once 10 or 11 years ago, 12 years ago, whenever I first published this list and, and discussed it in an old podcast or in an old forum and, and they insisted that Greek and Hebrew could not be related, that Hebrew could not be an Indo-European language because it had a dual form in the number of its nouns. And Greek also, and there are several words in Greek which still represent the dual form. And the one that I can remember is asa which means eyes. And if you only had one eye, the form of the word was different. If you had two eyes, the word was asa. And there's a plural form, <coughs> which is also different. The word asa, which is the Greek term for eyes, is generally recognized by Liddell and Scott and other Greek grammarians as being a dual form. And there are a few other Greek words in our lexicon that retain that dual form so that we see that eventually, that the Greeks began with a dual form to the number of their nouns, but eventually it faded out of use and they used just a singular and plural.
So, so that, that's an important feature that is common to both languages. It was just fell under disuse in Greek, but there is a dual form to certain Greek nouns. So carneum, what we see that carneum, and, and it has a prefix on it that I can't quite remember right now, but it is in scripture on one occasion. Karen. Q-E-R-E-N may as well be spelled Q-E-R-N, except for the vowel points of the Masoretes, right? And a Karen is a horn. So Carnaim means a pair of horns. The Doric Greek word Carnaia is a festival. And the name Carnaia comes from the word Karnan, which is a horn in Doric Greek. So Karnan is, with all certainty, a cognate of Karen, which is a horn. Now the Welsh have a word, speaking about Welsh as we did last week, Karnux, K-A-R-N-U-X, which is a horn. And I believe that word appears in the definition of Carnaya, the festival, in the Liddell and Scott Greek English lexicon, that they noted that that word exists. That's how I know about it. So the Greeks also had a word, keras, K-E-R-A-S, where we see the disappearance of the N, which means horn. And the, the Romans in Latin, cornu, C-O-R-N-U, means horn. And in English, of course, we have the words horn and corn. And I believe that both of them came from this word karen. Corn being... The, the word corn originally did not refer to maize, to, to the vegetable that Americans know as corn. The Europeans didn't have maize until the... North America was discovered, right? There was no maize in Europe that we know of. The word corn, if you look at all 18th and 19th century English literature, was simply a word for grain. That's all it meant. And if you look in the King James Version of the Bible, in the New Testament especially, in the Gospels of Christ, you'll see that the word horn was often used to represent the grains. They were picking the horns off the grape, off, off of the grain in the field so that they could eat it. And I'm pretty sure that appears in the King James Version of the Bible. Yes, so when Isaac blesses Jacob, uh, the archaic translation is you'll have plenty of corn and wine, but what it really means is grain and wine, basically uh, fields full of crops, right? Not, not actually maize. Right. It, it's corn was used of any grain. It was a general word for any grain. And in America, in the, probably in the 17th century or 16th century, no, probably to set from the 17th century, somehow corn came colloquially to be used only of maize. And and the word took on that new meaning. So when I say maize, I mean 
M-A-I-Z-E, which is a, another term for the same vegetable, right? And that uh, Karen and Kanayim, they're like completely different. We, we have no chance of knowing what dual forms and all that were of all these Hebrew words, right? we got nothing to go with. I'm sorry, please repeat that. I, 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 you lost me. Or just what I mean is when you look, Karen's, is that the normal form? And then Kanayim is the dual form. Yes. Did I, or did I um, mishear you? Sorry. No, that's correct. Oh, I was just saying that if you did, that we have no idea of, of understanding how, um, how you make a dual form of a Hebrew word or a plural, just looking at how completely different those words are that it just shows you how we have no idea of the grammar really, do we, of, of Hebrew, just here as an example. Well, well, right. That's exactly true. And, and that's every single one of these words. If the form doesn't appear in a lexicon, because we don't read the Bible in Hebrew or because we don't have any other examples of Hebrew literature outside of the Bible, then there are forms that only the a he, only a modern Hebrew speaker, only a Jew might understand, even though they really don't speak Hebrew, they speak Yiddish. The, the ancient Hebrew grammar and vocabulary are, to a great extent, still there. Karnaim appears in the scriptures only in Genesis chapter 14, verse 5. So let me go to Genesis 14, 5. So all of these words have other grammatical forms that may be even closer to cognate English, Latin, or Greek words that, than we can imagine. Okay, Karnaim is in, is Ashtaroth Karnaim. In Genesis chapter 14 verse 5. And that would mean Ashtaroth of the pair of horns. Ashtaroth of the horns is how we would translate it. But Karnaim refers specifically to two horns. So it could be Ashtaroth of the two horns or peaks. So it must, it, it, it referred to a place where this idol Ashtaroth must have been Popular, let me put it that way. I'm still looking for things in scripture, I'm sorry. Pluck the ears of the corn, that's what it says in scripture, it doesn't say horns. I have, I, I have examples in my head somewhere of that word horns being used to describe grain, and I just can't pull it out of there, I'm sorry. But the horns the word horns has been used in the past to describe the actual part of the grain where the seeds are that you would eat to pluck them. Okay, we can move on. 7176 and 7178, Keref, Q-E-R-E-T-H, and Kartan, Q-A-R-T-A-N, and I probably should have grouped these with Kirya because Keref is an alternate word for a city and Kartan means a city plot. And there's a Greek word, Chortus. Chortus, C-H-O-R-T-O-S, which is an enclosed place, which is basically what a city is, once again. And there's a Latin word, Cohors, 
C-O-H-O-R-S, which is a barnyard, which is also an enclosed place. And then there's the English word court. And this is Kereth and Kartan. And, of course, the A is subjective. It could very easily be an O or U. And and in Kereth, the E is subjective also. And that could very easily be an O or U. So it's very plausible that these words, which have basically the same consonants or, or sounds, that the C is hard in Latin. It's pronounced more like a Q or a K when it begins a, a word. And the CH sound in Greek is hard. That's the letter key. And it's spelled, the letter is spelled C-H-I in English. But that key is not a ch, it's a k. And, and we know that because we see how the key letter is transliterated into Latin. And the CH sound is, that, that hard CH sound becomes simply a hard C in Latin. So, and, and that's very common in names that were transliterated from Greek into Latin. There's very many of them. And including Christ, right? Christos. Christ, it is not spelled with a CH. I, I, in, in Latin, as far as I know, I'm going to look that up because I could possibly be wrong, but there aren't very many CH words in Latin. Yes, it is, they did retain the H for the word Christ, so I'm wrong about that, but that's fine. There aren't very many CH words in Latin, and very often it's just the C. And there aren't very many K words in Latin, unless the K the, the Romans really didn't use the letter K in their language, unless the K represented a word from Greek, like in the spelling of Corinth, they maintained the K. But in the spelling of others, other words, they used the C instead. So, it's very possible, because of the way it was used early on, that the words charter and chart, to chart something, to map it out, were also... For, as well as court, were also cognates with this same term, right? 72.14. Rayum. It has that apostrophe in the middle. And, and I'm going to see if that, because I'm, I'm not trusting some of Strong's transliterations now. It, it may or may not represent the ion letter. And the ion letter is very rarely transliterated as anything but an apostrophe from what I remember from Strong's transliterations. But here it doesn't. It, it's simply a resh, an aleph, and an m. The, the, um, mun, mun, mum, mun, what, what was that? Mem. The mem character, mem, the yeah. m. It's the, it's the letter, it's called mem, m-e-m. So, it's a Russian aleph and, and a mem is basically r-a-m. And if I was transliterating that, that's the way I would do it. I wouldn't do it the way Strong's did it. Strong's transliterated resh aleph mem as r-e apostrophe e-m. 
Now, that probably comes from these silly little Masoretic vowel points, and I've never taken the time in my life to understand them, and I refuse to, because they are the products of rabbinical Judaism. They, to me, all these vowel points, every single one of them, is a corruption of the Hebrew language, because they didn't exist in original Hebrew. So, I would transliterate, this is R-A-M, this R-E apostrophe E-M, it comes from three Hebrew words, Hebrew letters, I'm sorry, Resh, Aleph, Mem. So, there's another version of it with a Yad, and that's Reem in Strong's, it's R-E-E-Y-M, but it's the same thing, it's Resh, Aleph, Yad, Mem. It's four letters in Hebrew. And he has another reem or re, re, and, and I'm not going to bother looking at the Hebrew for that. It don't, it's R-E-Y-M, or just R-E, it seems. And, and a ram or ram, R-A-M, in Hebrew is a wild bull. And I would insist that that's the source of the English word ram, R-A-M. For, for a, a male sheep. 7218. Rosh. R-O-S-H. The head or principle. And Resh. R-E-S-H. 7217. Is a ruler. Or a sum. Or the top of something. Or the head. And I'm going to look up Resh. Because I believe the final letter is only an S, right? The shin letter, which could be an S or an SH. I should really add the Hebrew spellings to this list sooner or later. It, it would probably help readers in the future. That's a little tedious. Yes, it's just the shin character, and it's spelled resh, aleph, shin. So it could be an S or an SH, and you'll find the S sometimes standing for the shin in the transliteration of some words. So Rosh is the head, principal, ruler, sum, or top, and Resh is the head or sum. And I believe these are cognate with the Latin word Rex, which is a king, and the German word Reich, which is the sum of, of, it's an empire, or a kingdom. It's usually translated as kingdom, I believe, in English. Yeah, and it's, that, that, um, Rex, that X is very close to like an SH, an S, right? Resh, Rex. Oh, yeah. So, so it's really close. And, um, it, interestingly, uh, just a few things. If you look at the pictograph of, um, Rosh, right, that the head, this, this is where we get the R letter from, right? It was a picture of a head and it's so clearly a Caucasian skull. How a nigger can look at that and imagine <laughs> that it's like, uh, an ape skull shape when it's not, right? It's clearly a white man's, uh, shaped head, right? Well, well, I'm sure it would be in, in ancient times because of, a white man's head would be the normal person's head, and anything else would be a problem, would be an anomaly, right? Yeah. But I was just looking at this. I was just curious. I looked up. Um, so, so in Middle English, we did have this, um, and it was 
There's a few variations like R-I-C-H-E, Rish, or R-Y-C-H-E, Reich, however you spell it. So I would uh, propose that maybe this is where you got rich from to be, uh, you know, rich, wealthy, because only rulers were, were rich, right? And then if you go back to old, old English, like ancient English, there's even an older version, R-I-S-E, rise. So maybe even t- to rise up m- might have uh, originated from this word, you know, from, from the resh. I, I don't know. But, but it's all fascinating, right? All these uh, old variations. That, but do you think rich probably come from there as well? Well, well, rich is very plausible. And even rise is plausible because rush, rush, the O is subjective. It doesn't necessarily have to be an O. It, it could 7218 is simply the, the R and the Aleph and the Shin. So, there, Strong's translated the Aleph, which is an A, as an O. Right? So, so we see that now it's even closer to Rex and, and Reich with an Aleph than it is with an O, in, in my opinion. Well, well, Resh is a sum and Rosh is also a sum over the top. So, Rise, coming from those words, is actually it it is plausible yes those words are similar cognate words i don't know if i have rise in this list it may be i don't remember i can't remember the the whole list i mean otherwise i wouldn't i'd I'd probably be a computer 7264 is Regaz, Ragaz, R-A-G-A-Z, and it means to quiver. Now, in this sense, it's not a, a quiver like a full of arrows, right? To quiver is to tremble or to shake in, in a rapid motion, right? And, and we picture people being scared or being angry as trembling or shaking. Rapidly. So, 7265, regaz is to provoke unto wrath, R-E-G-A-Z, and 7266, regaz, same spelling, is violent anger. And I believe that these are the words which are cognate with the Latin rabidae, which is madly or furiously. Rabidus, rabid, which mean mad or furious, and the English terms rage, R-A-G-E, and it's closer to rage than it is to the Latin, and that informs me that it's a cognate with English that, like I said in the introduction of this program, did not come through Latin. So we have rage and rave, R-A-V-E. And then we have rabbit and rabies. So we could say that we got rabbit and rabies from Latin, and that's fine. But I believe that the Latin is cognate to the Hebrew as well. The G becoming a B in Latin. And it's basically the same word. 
the English terms rage and rave definitely are cognates with these Hebrew words. 7300, rude, R-U-W-D. Now, that you could very easily be an O or even an A, but rude means to tramp about, i.e. to ramble, and also to have the dominion, to be lord, to rule. And we see that, that meaning in Genesis chapter 1 in verse 26, where it says that man will have the dominion, the word actually is this same word, which is um, rude. It, it's, it can mean to trample down or tramp upon and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea. And I'm sorry, it's a related word. It's 7287, Rada. So it's not the same exact word, but 7287 certainly is a cognate with 7300. And Rada is the primitive root, and it's strong 7300. It's rude is a primitive root. But Rada means to tread down, and Rude means to tramp upon. So those vowels, the U being subjective, they're definitely related words with related meanings. And um, the, the pharaohs of Egypt, they had um, pictures of Nubians and uh, was it Hittites or Canaanites underneath the, their souls, like a picture of a nigger and the ancestor of the Jews. So, so they store it as if you rule someone, then you walk over them, right? That it that it was all right back then in those days. Yes, and and the ancient Egyptians when when they prostrated themselves before the pharaohs, they actually laid on their bellies on the ground. So so they're making an offer that they could be walked on by the king, right? I believe that from rude to tramp about comes the English word road, and. Because that's what you do with the road. You walk down it, right? And and in the sense of having the dominion, I believe that's the cognate with the English word rod, a rod being a, a symbol of, of a king or, or a ruler. 7301, Rava, as Strong transliterates it, R-A-V-A-H, is to slake the thirst to bathe, to make drunk, or to fill, or to satiate, or satisfy. And I believe this is the source or cognate of English words ravine, rave, and even ravish, in my opinion. And especially ravine is something which is filled. Some ravines are formed by running rainwater. To ravish, in an archaic sense, is to seize and carry off someone by force, but also, in a literary sense, to fill someone with delight, according to our English dictionaries. It was also used of a man raping a woman, but raping a woman, a man is 
satisfying his carnal desires. And we see that the word has that sense as well in the Hebrew, to satiate or to satisfy. 7321, ruah, and I'm going to peek at how that is spelled, whether it actually has that aleph at the end of it or not. Because I, I'm really disappointed with some of Strong's transliterations. No, that that has an iron at the end of it. That Strong's Strong's did represent the iron in his transliteration, but I omitted the apost the apostrophe in mine in in my reproduction of it. That may have been intentional or not. Of course, I can't remember. But it's the Resh or the R and the Vav and the Ion, which Strong's represents by an A apostrophe, as he also does with the Aleph at the end of words, as we saw just a few minutes ago. So Ruah is to mar, figuratively to split the ears with sound, i.e. shout. And I believe that's the cognate source of our English word roar in that sense to shout or to split the ears with sound. 7329 Raza R-A-Z-A-H is to emaciate or to make thin, to make or become thin. And I believe that's the cognate source of our English words raise R-A-S-E or R-A-Z-E, and razor, which is something that's very thin. It's something made thin so that it could shave. 7371. And in ancient times, you would have had to use a piece of shale stone or something and, and make it thin. They actually made knives out of stone in ancient times. They made blades out of stone by breaking it thinner and splitting it thinner and thinner and thinner. And you could do that with certain types of stone. 7371. <clears throat> Rakath, R-A-C-H-A-T-H. Rakath is a winnowing fork. And when you drop the A-T-H, you have an you have a rake. <laughs> the English word for rake, which is often a winnowing fork. 7378. Rib or rub, and it's spelled either with a yod, reeb, I would say, R-I-Y-B, or with a vav, where Strong's transliterates it as R-U-W-B. So it's rib or rub, or, or reeb or rube, if you want to accept the Masoretic vowel points. And it means to toss to grapple, figuratively, to wrangle, in other words, it asked, to hold a controversy. So it's toss, grapple, and even to have a controversy, or fight, right, or wrangle with somebody. Rib and rubri are cognate with the English words rob, robbery, and rub. When you're rubbing something, you're, you're basically grappling or wrangling with it. And when you're robbing somebody, you're holding a controversy over what he has because you want it. So I believe those words are all related. 
7477, and I'm going to look at these spellings too, and 7478. Now, in Hebrew, they're both spelled exactly the same. Resh, Ayin, and, and then the L character, which is called Lamed. So it's R-A-L is the spelling. I, I mean, that's how I would transliterate it. But Strong's transliterates 7477 as R-A apostrophe A-L. So he gets A apostrophe A out of the Ayin letter. And he translates, transliterates them both the same way. And Rao in Hebrew means to reel. And as a noun, it's a reeling. And I believe that is the source of our English word reel. It's the exact same sound and definition. Reel, to reel in the sense of going back and forth as if you're drunk. 74.93. And this is probably a similar spelling. It, it's um, R-A apostrophe A-S-H. But in Hebrew, again, it's only the resh, the ayin letter, and the shin. So it's R-A-S-H is exactly how I would transliterate the word. And it means to undulate, particularly through fear. And speculatively, to spring as a locust. Maybe specially, I don't know, I I didn't look at what Strong's meant by that S-P-E-C period. abbreviation in his definitions, right? I'm sorry, I just didn't take the time to look that up. So, and I should. So it's to undulate, particularly through fear. So it can mean to spring as a locust. I guess that would be like springing away from something, because if you go near a locust, it's going to spring away from you out of fear. And the King James Version had... translated this word in a figurative manner in several places as to remove but also to quake as you quake with fear you undulate or quake with fear so you move away quickly and to also to remove or to make afraid so that's to undulate particularly through fear so sometimes they translated it to make afraid. I believe this is, it is the English word rash. When we do something rashly, in, in that sense of the term, or rush, and both of those actions could come from fear. Fear, anxiety, um, anticipation that something's going to happen. You would rush away, or you would rush to something. Or rash. And it is the word rash. It's spelled exactly like our English word rash. 7511. Raphas. R-A-P-H-A-C. Now I'm going to look at the spelling of that. And I'm sure that C comes from the Samek character. Which is a soft C or an S. 
in, in Hebrew, but it's always represented by a C. That would be a soft English C, as opposed to the shin, which is more guttural S and, or SH, right? 7511. Yes, that's the Samek. There's only three letters here. It's a resh, and then the, 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 um, pe, or, or the P character, and I'm looking for that to make sure I'm calling it by the right name, because I'm sorry I don't read, yes, that's a pe, our English P, and, and that's off to the PH, and then the Samek, or the soft C. So, 7511, Raph Ass, and 7513, Raph Soda. A Raph Soda is a raft as being flat. And Raph Ass also means to trample, sort of like that road word. So, <clears throat> to trample or Raph Soda as being flat, a raft, I believe that is the, the English words cognate with these are, are raft, because a raft is something flat that you could also walk on, and also possibly the English word rafter, which is used for, for roofing in our, in, in our modern vernacular, but it's a flat structure. A rafter. So the word raft certainly comes from rafas and, and rapsoda, in my opinion. 7516, refesh, is mud. And I believe that's where the English term raffish comes from. It's R-A-F-F-I-S-H. And it's something that's disreputable, which is smeared with mud. And I believe that's how that word raffish had evolved. Something soiled is disreputable. And it's from the Hebrew word for mud, in my opinion. Now, 7563, I should have lumped with... 7493, I really should have. It's Rasha, and a Rasha, it's a morally wrong or bad person. And <clears throat> I believe that this is cognate with the English word rash, but it's also related to Rasha, so I should have lumped it together. It could also, in this sense, be cognate with rash in the sense of a stain on one's skin or a mark on one's skin that <clears throat> would even in, in the scriptures in the Old Testament what was um, indicative that someone had some moral problem that they needed to repent from. When you have rashes you have some sort of problem. 7592 Sheal S-H-A apostrophe A-L, and I'm sure that once again, that that A apostrophe A is either simply an ion or simply an A-left that I would only want to represent with an A, right? So I'm going to look that up in, in this 
paper concordance. And, and here, 7563, Rasha, okay, I'm at the wrong one. I got to go to 7592. It is simply an Aleph, and it's S-H-A-L in Hebrew. It's the Shin, the Aleph, and the Lamed, or L. So, once again, here Strong takes an Aleph and makes it A apostrophe A because of those damned Masoretic vowel points, and I will call them damned, right? 7592 is Shal, S-H-A-L, and it, or Shal, and I didn't look to see why he made that variation because it's spelled the same exact way, but he, he wrote S-H-A apostrophe E-L, but it's the same, it's, it's the same exact three letters with different vowel points. That's all it is. So right there, the Masoretes made two words out of one, but it's the same word. To inquire. By implication, to request, and by extension, to demand, and that's our English word, shall, which you can use in a demand or in an inquiry. Shall I pour you another cup of tea? I'm sure you hear that a lot at around 4 p.m. in Britain. So that's an inquiry. I wonder if this is a compound word of... S and then L, you know, the word God, if that's originally where it come from, and then it just became a normal common word, shall. You know, that is a possibility, but we would have to really dig into ancient Hebrew to see if that happened in any other instances before I would accept it. If there are other examples of that same grammatical feature or function. That's what I Maybe that's why he's torn if it's uh, A apostrophe E-L or A-L. He wasn't, just wasn't sure. Well, well, evidently some rabbis wrote the letter with different vowel points than other rabbis because there are clearly two sets of vowel points. So he supplied two different transliterations. In the first set, the Aleph has an underscore below it. And in the second set, the Aleph has two dots below it. And that's the way the rabbis, the Masoretic rabbis, and, and they're called Masoretic rabbis because the vowel pointing appeared at around the same time that the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible was being developed because it was more or less developed. If you look at Flavius Josephus and a lot of his biblical quotations and, and, or citations, he clearly had a slightly different Hebrew scripture than what we have in the Masoretic text, that there were different versions of the Hebrew scriptures already by the first century A.D. And from what I understand, even though I never read this in first-hand sources, I've only read it in second-hand sources, the Masoretic rabbis, they're called that because they're the rabbis that settled on a Masoretic text, it was their endeavor to have a standard biblical text 
And I've read, I don't know if it's true or not, but I've read that they purposely sought to destroy all of the Hebrew texts that had variations from what they settled on. Now, I'm not, we, we know that Jews are inherently evil, but I'm not going to say that the Masoretic rabbis had purposely evil intentions when they did that. It, it seems to be a more academic endeavor to me than it was a, an endeavor to purposely do evil. And I'm sure that some of their decisions may have been good and most of them were probably bad because we still have this corrupted Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 that we see in in the Septuagint as well. The Septuagint and, and of course the various Greek versions had early versions, the ones in Origins Hexapla, had like four different interpretations of Genesis 4.1. So we had corrupted passages, but some passages were corrupted by Jeremiah's time. As we read in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 8, there were already corruptions in, in the books of the law and, and other places in Scripture by his time. And, and that would easily account for why Josephus seems to have had a different version of scripture because it has many differences, the, the citations in Josephus with the Masoretic text. And even a Septuagint has a lot of passages that are different and the differences can't possibly be accounted for by quote unquote poor translation. They can't be. We should probably move on with our list so that we do complete this today. I'm sorry. 7607, and here we go again, S-H-E apostrophe E-R. But in Hebrew, it's just Shin Aleph Resh. So it's Shar. S-H-A-R is the way I would transliterate it. And 7608, Shara. It, it's the same spelling, but it has the letter he affixed to the end of it. So we see the A-H at the end of the same spelling. Strong's transliterated it with A's rather than with E's. And Shar is flesh, but it's also kindred by blood. And Shara is the feminine form. A lot of times that he on the end of the word... And I meant to bring this up before, but a lot of times it merely represents the feminine form. So if there's a word that ends with yod and the feminine form is used, it would have that he on the end. So it could end with ya, y-a-h in English, but for a reason other than any connection to the name, to the name of Yahweh. So a city that would be a female uh, I guess because they saw nations as as female, right? The wife yes. of Yahweh. Then a city Absolutely. would be the daughter of a of a nation, so it'd be female, right? Absolutely. And I meant to bring it up before, and I didn't. But I'm glad that we have this actual example here to discuss it, right? So, from this word Shara, which is female kindred by blood, I believe we have the Latin word Soror. S-O-R-O-R, which is a sister. 
And from that, of course, we have the English term sorority. But we also have from this, I believe, the English word she is just dropping the R off of, of this she'er or the feminine form dropping, only taking the first syllable of shara, in my opinion. She comes from this word, but definitely soror, which is the Latin word for a sister. 7651. Sheba is seven. And Sheba, I think, or I believe, gave us the English word seven, and the Latin version septem. There's only two of the numbers which are cognate with Latin, Greek, or English, and that's the numbers six and seven. 7717. Sahed. Sahed. 7717. And I should definitely get a version of this list with the trans, with my own transliterations on it, or with the Hebrew letters represented. I would not use the vowel points though. That's, that, that's Shin, Hey, and, and the, the D character, which is Dalet, not Delta like in Greek, that the consonants are switched. Dalet in Hebrew, D-A, L-E-T. It's an anagram for delta, right? And and even in those names of the letters, we see how consonants can be switched back and forth when they're taken into Greek, how the Greeks changed the... Like, instead of Aleph, it's Alpha, and instead of Delta, it's Dalet, right? Okay. That's also a digression. But Sahed to testify or a witness I believe is the origin of the English word said and also say without the D just drop the D and you have say and it's to say something it is to be a witness to something or to testify something it's it's not always merely to speak it's the English word said is the same exact word so and so said he testified, or he was a witness to some fact. You could be a witness to fact, or, or a witness to an ordinary statement. You don't necessarily have to be a witness in court to testify of something, right? If you tell me it's raining, I could say that you testified to me that it was raining. Now, that's an overuse of the term, but it's still true. 7722. <clears throat> Show, and that's exactly how Strong's transliterated it. S H O W or Shoah, S H O W apostrophe A H, and I'm sure that is only the same word with the hey added, or maybe an Aleph and a hey is a possibility. But I'm gonna look, and I know looking at these Hebrew spellings are taking a lot of extra time. Okay, Strong's transliterated that this word show, S-H-O-W, but it's spelled with a shin, a vav, and an aleph in Hebrew. And shoah is the same spelling. And this is the word shoah that the Jews like to use to destroy 
that the Jews like to use to describe the Holocaust that never happened, right? This is the same word. So it's also spelled with the Shin, Vav, Aleph, and a He, the H at the end of it, or with simply, without the Vav, with the Shin, Aleph, and He, which is S-H-A-H, but that's what the rabbis pronounce as Shoah. So, a Shoah, or a, yeah, it should be a Shoah in any spelling, because strong in that one variation did not represent the Aleph at all. It should always be a Shoah. Is a tempest, and by implication, it's devastation. And it is actually translated as destroy or destruction or wasteness in the King James Version. So a storm destroys things, right? I'm familiar with that being here in Florida and suffering hurricanes. I believe that Shoah is the origin of the English word shower, which is basically the same exact word with an R on the end instead of an H. Yeah, and it could be a meteor shower, and then eventually, as we developed, uh, you know, the, the showers that bring out water, we just use that word, even though it's not destroying you, right? Right, but that shower is is um, often associated with devastation, yes, that word shower. And if you grew up in New England, you wouldn't say shower, you would say shower. So, so... <laughs> You would be saying the same exact Hebrew word. I'm just kind of making a joke, but it's sort of true. Shower. Take a shower. That's what I grew up hearing. Okay. 7751. Shoot. Strong's transliterates that. S-H-U-W-T. I'm fairly certain that the U is not represented in the Greek. It's just Shin, Vav, and, and then the T character, which is a tav or a thab. It could be a T or a TH sound. And shoot means to push forth. Imagine that. And I believe that's the, that's cognate. That's the source of the English words shot, shoot, and shot, which are the same exact word. And to, when you shot, take a shot at something, you pushed forth. It might be a bullet. It might be your fist. It, it might be your open hand, your palm, but you take a shot at something, you shot something forth towards it. It's the same exact word. Shoot and shot. You push the door, yet you're shutting the door. Same word. 7757. Shul. S-H-U-W-L, which I'm sure is just Shin, Vav, and Lamed is a skirt, a shul, is a skirt. That U is subjective. Strong's could have transliterated that with an A, if he so chose, or an O. A shul, or a shawl, is a skirt, by implication, a bottom edge. And the American Heritage College Dictionary attributes the English word to a Persian word, shawl, S-H-A-L, and it just so happens that it's even closer to the spelling of the Hebrew than it is to the Persian. 
a shawl. So, and Persian, the Persians were, the Elamites were Semites. That they were from Shem, just like the Hebrews. So why wouldn't they have a similar word? They probably had a lot of similar words. In fact, the word paradise, the Greeks had said, came from Persian, that they borrowed that as a loan word from Persian, and I believe Herodotus had attested to that, if I'm not mistaken, which I don't think I am. And, And paradise is actually that Persian word, that's the way the Greeks spelled a Persian word, right? Paradisus. Well, there's a Hebrew word somewhere in this list. It it might yet be coming. Maybe I'm not up to it. I thought it was here in this list. Pardes. P-A-R-D-E-C. That C being the soft Samek letter. That's how Strong's transliterated Pardes, which is a Hebrew word for a park. And the, the the Persians had the same word. I believe that's the source of our word, park. It's cognate with the English word paradise. Whether it comes from Persian or from, or from Hebrew really doesn't matter because it's the same as pardes. Okay. 7787, sur. S-U-W-R means to saw. And I believe it is the source of the English word saw, which means to saw, right? I I don't know how James Strong didn't write a book, write this book, because he should, he must have noticed all of these correlations and, and identical terms. I think it took him 30 years just to get to this, right? And I think he was quite old just as it was released. It might have even been released after he died. So maybe that would have been his next project, right? Yeah, right. He, he was quite old. He This Strong's Concordance was actually a pretty massive undertaking. It was. And and I just imagine the piles of scraps of paper he had to put it together. I really could. Going through the entire um, Hebrew and Greek Bible and and listing each word where it appears in every verse, that must have been a huge undertaking. He would have needed a stack of papers kept in order for each word, basically, of of the English language. And each paper would have had its own little list on it of, of times a particular word appeared in the Bible and the Hebrew and Greek word that it was translated from which is how we get the Strong's numbers, right? And he would have had to number the alpha, the number the dictionaries first in order to do that. He would have first had to construct the grammar, find out all the words, different Hebrew and Greek words that appear in the Bible, and make a list of them, and assign each one a number. And it is a massive undertaking. I imagine it probably did take 30 years. If I thought about how long it took me to create my Christogenia New Testament translation and all the original notes that I have, I still have to this day in notebooks. I'm actually still using them in in my new Revelation commentary. If I compile all that time, it probably took me three or four years to do. 
Now, I could have translated it in a year, but I translated it twice, actually. Every, every book of the Bible. And then went back through every verse and every variation among the different manuscripts. So that I could make my notes. Why I use particular manuscripts or, or whatever I, whatever I chose to use to translate a verse. So it probably took three or four years altogether. I'm thinking three years, but it took me four years. And if you think about the time I took off for other projects, I probably only used three quarters of, of the time I spent working on it to, to work on that, right? So I'm guessing three years. Okay, that's a distraction, but I'm just trying to state that these projects, when you're working with pencil and paper, take years to complete. It's not any, today we have computers and I could write a podcast in two days where the same essay when I was working with nothing but a pencil and paper would have taken me two or three weeks to to write, probably two weeks to write one podcast in, in those years of my life when I only had pencil and paper, when I was in prison, right? Okay, three words, 7788. Sure, S-H-U-W-R. And 7789 is transliterated the same way. And then 7891, which is a little further on in, in the Hebrew alphabet, it's Shire, S-H-I-Y-R. And the difference there is Shin Vab Resh for the first two. 778889 and Shin Yadresh for 7891 which could actually be a scribal error I don't know how often each one appears in scripture but they do have different meanings and they're lumped together for a reason sure is to turn about or to travel about and 7789, spelled the same way, is to spy out or survey. And I believe that these are cognate with the English word show, which is to turn, to travel and turn around and, and be shown something. If I want to show you something, or to spy out or survey, if I want to show you something, Right? Or you want to be able to show something. And then Shire, 7891, and it's spelled very similarly. It, it has a yod instead of a, a vab, is to sing. Or it describes a singer. And when we watch somebody singing, we call it a show. So that these three words represent are represented by this word show, or in, in all of the senses that we use the word show. Now we have another, and, and well, when we go to a movie, we watch a show on a wall, right? Well, that's probably just a coincidence, but 7791 is also sure. It's also transliterated the same way by Strong, S-H-U-W-R, and it means a wall. And I believe that that is the English word sure, 
S-H-O-R-E, which is basically a wall between the land and the sea. And in, in all of its senses, because we shore up a wall very often in English. And it's also possible that that's the a cognate or related to the English word shire, which is a a district or area that that's perhaps a wall isn't built around it, but it's more or less figuratively walled off, bordered off. And the shore is basically just a, a wall on a on a on a cliff, right? And then you have ports that's like a hole in that cliff. Right. Yes. It, if you really think about the word shore. From the perspective of being in the sea, not from the perspective of being on land. There's a difference. Seventy eight twenty seven. Shekelef is appealing off S-H-E-C-H-E-L-E-T-H. Shekelef is appealing off, and I believe that's the origin of the English word shuck, which is really only the first syllable of Shekelef. 7876, Shia, to keep in memory, Shea, Shia, S-H-A-Y-A-H, and I want to see how, how that was spelled in Hebrew. It's just three letters. It's Shin, Yad, He. So it's, I, I don't, Shia, it's not really, it's really just three letters. Shin, Yad, He. Which is She, perhaps, or, or something, something similar is to keep in memory. And I believe that's cognate with the English words save, to save something in your mind. Safe, to keep something safe, or to keep it in memory, is keeping an idea or a concept or, or a, a poem or, or whatever you had to memorize, it's keeping it safe. Or share, shaya, share, to keep in memory, to if I keep something in my memory and I recite it, I share it with you. I'm keeping it safe, but I'm sharing it with you. I believe that these words are all related. Now, this next word is, um, wow. To me, it's obvious. To, to a lot of people, these words aren't going to be obvious. But I guess if you get used to working with other, language, other languages, it becomes obvious. Well, 7878 is Siak. It's S-I-Y, so that's Shin-Yad, A-C-H, and I don't know if there's an Aleph in there or not. I'm going to look, I hope quickly, 7878 Siak. Nope, it's just Shin-Yad, and then the Heth character, which is the hard C-H. So, that would be psych, is how I would transliterate and pronounce that. S-Y-C-H, psych. And it means to ponder, or even to converse, or to utter. To converse with oneself, and hence aloud. 
as people often think aloud. And, and we still do that today. We still have that aspect of pondering something in our society to think aloud. So that's how psych was used. And I really do believe that this is the, a cognate with the Greek word suke and the Latin word psyche and therefore the English term psyche and psycho and they're all related to your thought or your pondering or and I understand that suke has other meanings in Greek which are related to breath and that it was used to describe breath but it, it, it is also used to describe one's essence or pondering or thought. And that aspect of the word has always been with that word as long as we've had literature. I'm trying to look up a, an English term in the Latin portion of my software and that doesn't quite work. Suke is used to describe the spirit, just like pneuma is, or the soul, the life, the breath, just like pneuma is. <clears throat> but it is also the the consciousness and the thoughts of someone. And in that sense, it is related to this psych in, in Hebrew. As far as I'm concerned, it's basically the same word. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but we will get through this. Yes, yeah, uh, just today. not to be confused with all the uh, Jewish science that that we now have, right? Like uh, with, with the psyche and you know mental health and, and all that BS that they've come up right, come up with. Absolutely, that this has nothing to do with psychiatry, but it's where our words came from. The the word psyche. Or the Latin version of it, which is basically the same as the English, or this Greek term suke. Now, suke is defined, I believe this is Liddell and Scott. The breath, the breath of life, the vital force which animates the body and shows itself in breathing. To me, that, that can also be seen as the consciousness, and it's the consciousness which has the ability to ponder and I believe that's how the Greek word evolved from this Hebrew word, which means to ponder or to converse with oneself, which is you're talking to your own consciousness. And of course, you can't ponder anything without breath. 7897, sheath, S-H-I-Y-T-H. That's probably spelled with three Hebrew letters, shin, yad, thav. And it's a dress as something put on. And I believe that's the source of the English word sheath or sheave. You're putting on a dress. You're sheathing yourself. You're covering yourself. You're putting something on. And that that evolved into the word that we use as, as a, a dress for a knife or sword, a sheath that we cover our knives or swords with. 7931. Here's, a, here's four words, and they are all transliterated 
almost the same way. 7931, 32, 33, and 34. And it's shakan, S-H-A-K-A-N, which is to reside or to cause to dwell. And shakan, which is a residence. And shakan, which is a resident or by extension, a fellow citizen. Shakan. Shakan to reside. Shakan to cause to dwell. Shakan a residence, or shaken, spelled like our English word shaken, which is a resident. And I believe that the words shack and shackle evolved from these Hebrew words, and the English word shack is a residence. Now, it's a poor man's residence, right? But it's still a residence where someone resides. And shackle in the sense of causing someone to stay in one place, to reside in one place, is what we do with by shackling him, by, by putting him in shackles. You're, you're causing someone to stay or reside in a single place. I don't think that's a stretch at all. And it's definitely the source of the English word shack, which is a residence. 7982, Shelet, S-H-E-L-E-T, is a shield. And I'm sure that those E's were both added and that the original language perhaps didn't have one or the other. I'm going to look real quick. Shelet is simply Shin Lamed Tav. So both these are, are added in, in, in Strong's transliteration, but it could have very easily been shelt, or schlet, or shelt. But a shelet is a shield, and I believe that is the exact source of the English word shield, and also the word shelter, which shields you from the environment outside. Finally, the last entry in page four of our Strong's Numbers, we have page five is much shorter, and I will try to get through it without too many digressions. 8159, Sheha. Now, I'm sure if I I look that up, that the A apostrophe A that Strong's has is really just one A, and I'm going to do that quickly. 8159 is Shin Ayan He. It's S-H-A-H. Sha is to gaze at or about. By implication, to inspect or to consider. Sha and 8160, Sha, which is a look. And that may be cognate with the English word show, to look at something, and with the English word to see, S-E-E, to, it, it's almost identical if we pronounce the shin, S-H, as simply an S, sa, it basically is the English word see. I'm sure in some dialects they would pronounce see as sa, I saw it. <laughs> yeah, saw. The, the word saw, S-A-W, it is another form of the same word. In the sense, not, we, we've already seen the word saw, S-A-W, in the sense of cutting, 
but this is saw, S-A-W, in the past tense of seeing is this exact Hebrew word. If you pronounce the shin as an S and not merely an S-H. And now we're going to move on to the list in part five of our, the way we organize this at Christagenia. I broke it into five parts. And the first entry is 8005. <clears throat> so don't ask me why I put that last entry on page four. I, I don't know. I was probably not paying attention and stuck it at the end. So maybe I thought I was on page five when I clicked. Who knows? 8005. Shillem, S-H-I-L-L-E-M, is requital in Hebrew. And requital is payback. So I really believe that that is the source of the English word shill. When you shill for something, you are advertising it for payback. Now that could have, that could be said to have come through modern Jewry, right? That we use that word shill. But I don't believe that. Because in English we have the shilling, which is a coin that you use to pay somebody back with. So I believe the term is probably older than modern Jewry <clears throat> and and is cognate with these words, shillam, which is requital. 8080, <clears throat> shaman, shaman or sha- shaman is S-H-A-M-A-N. It's to shine, which means to, or, or I-E, it is to be or make oily, or even gross. But shaman, I believe, is the English, the source of the English word shimmer and shine. Something that shimmers is something that shines. And oil will do that. It'll make something shimmer, right? And you think we got the word shaman from that as well? I'm not sure. The, the word shaman, I do believe, comes from Hebrew. It, it's attributed to, I'm sorry, my mind's drawing a, a blank. It, it's a language that I also believe comes from Hebrew and is found further east. And, and I'm just Sanskrit. I'm Sanskrit. There it is. I believe, yeah, you know, <clears throat> anthropologists and archaeologists that these people Linguists believe that Sanskrit is much older than Biblical Hebrew, and I believe that's a lie. It's a blatant lie because there aren't any examples. There aren't any actual archaeological examples proving that Sanskrit is any older than the time of Christ, from what I believe, and certainly not older than Moses. So I don't believe that any Indo-European languages came from Sanskrit, there are many similarities between Sanskrit and Hebrew, and I believe that Sanskrit came from Hebrew. That's my opinion, and it was one of the stepping stones into at least many of the Indo-European languages. So that word shaman, I'm sure it could have come from this word, as someone who shines, but I would I would want to look at 
other similar terms to see if there isn't a better candidate in Hebrew. Because there are many similar terms. There's 8085, which is Shama, which is to hear intelligently or, or to give attention to something or even obedience because you're listening to, to your better. There are other terms that might be better candidates. 8086, Shema is to hear or obey. Um, 8088, Shema is something heard. So there are other candidates for, for the origin of the word shaman. Then this particular version, which is a related word, but it means to shine. <clears throat> 8163. And this is transliterated by Strong's as either S-A apostrophe I-Y-R or S-A apostrophe I-R. And that's evidently indicating the presence of a yod in some spellings or the absence of a yod in others. And I want to see exactly what Hebrew letters. This is Shin Ayin Yad Resh or just Shin Ayin Resh. Now, it's apparent that that Ayin letter which I believe the um, the linguists or grammarians refer to it as a stop or some kind of guttural or, or glutinal stop, they call it, that that <clears throat> becomes a T sound when it's transliterated into other languages where Strong's just uses that apostrophe. But I think that there's a, a vowel affixed to a to a T sound in that in that letter, and that's my opinion. And this word is one of the words that leads me to believe that, because S A apostrophe I R means shaggy or a he goat or a fawn, and that's the source of our word satyr or the Greek satyrus, or the Latin satyrus. That's where it comes from. Now, you could say the English satyr comes from the Greek satyrus, and, and that's fine, but it ultimately came from this S-A apostrophe I-R, this satyr of the Hebrews. And it has the same exact meaning. Even though in Greek it came to mean a man who is half goat, the original meaning of the term, is goat in Hebrew. It's just a he-goat. And it also, as a as an adjective, can mean shaggy. Like a he-goat is shaggy. So, in Greek, it came to represent the character that was half-man, half-goat. And it had to be from this Hebrew term. And in Latin also. <clears throat> but in English, and and this comes from the Satyr play, which was a certain type of poem presented as what we call a play in ancient Greek, and that is the origin of the word satire, and also the English word satyr. And there are English words, I'm sorry, I had to sneeze. There are English words satyriasis, 
and satirid, which had to do with um, insatiability, right? Because those Greek satyrs were depicted as insatiable, sexually insatiable animals or beasts. Actually, I think they represent hominids that aren't really people. Have mixed races and, and things on the outskirts of society that were basically banished to the wilderness in ancient society. We might call them Arabs today. Or Jews. Okay. 8164. A very similar word. It's basically the same word. S-A apostrophe I-Y-R. It's spelled the same way in Hebrew. Shin Yad and Resh, I believe is what I had said, and Shin Ayan Yad Resh, I'm sorry. And that is also a shower as being tempestuous. And it's the same word as the word for Seder, but it's a shower. And I believe that comes from the roughness of a shower, but Strong's wrote tempestuous, because something shaggy like a goat has a rough feeling to it. So it was used to describe a shower, a rain shower. And that's where <clears throat> in, in sh- a shower actually helps fill us, right? I, I think that's the Latin satis, which is sufficient. And satur, S-A-T-U-R, which is full. Or saturare, which means to fill. And saturnus is the god of agriculture because he's also the storm god in Latin. So storms, rain produces, rain showers produce agriculture. And that's where that Saturn got his name from, right? And it came from this word Seder in the sense of a shower, not in the sense of a he-goat. In English... This gives us the word sate, S-A-T-E, which is to fill or to be sufficient. Saturate, Saturn, the planet, satisfy, and satiate. And it also, we also have the word Saturday, which I believe is Satyr's Day. It's not rain day, it rains every day. It's Satyr's Day, which is this Greek half-man, half-goat character. Okay, which came from Hebrew for goat. And um, he was the equivalent to Kronos, was he? He was uh, the god of Zeus, or in, in the Romans, he was the god of Jove, this evil god, right? I don't, I don't really know if the Romans looked upon Saturn as being evil, because rain and agriculture bring things that are good. So I don't know if Saturn... Yeah. I'm sorry? I was going to say, yeah, true, that wouldn't be bad, would it, to have um, good agriculture? Of course not. Right. So I believe these words evolved in Latin in the sen- from Seder, but in the sense of a shower, as the word was also used by the Hebrews. And that's why 8163 and 8164 have to be distinguished by Strong, so that they're not confused. It's two senses of the same word. But Strong felt those senses sufficiently different, which they are, because I, I believe Sater came to describe a, a rain shower or a storm because they are rough. 
It's rough weather. It's tempestuous. So Strong's felt that the the two meanings, even though the word is the same, that the two different meanings were markedly different enough, which they are, to to merit two different Strong's entries, right? There are different reasons for different Strong's entries for the same word. Usually he tried to separate the parts of speech. So we have four words, I believe it is, for Adam in in Strong's concordance, and one of them is the proper name, one of them is just a noun, meaning a man, the other one is the adjective, and then there was the verb, to show blood in the face, right? That's a verb. And then there's a fifth word that he broke out, which is Edom, and it's spelled with an E instead of an A in order to distinguish Esau from Adam. But it's the same word in Hebrew. The same exact word. With different vowel points from the rabbis. Okay. Edom representing the brother who would be fleshly, and therefore Adam, from Jacob, the brother who would follow the spirit, and therefore be named Israel. That's the difference between Jacob and Esau. When we follow the desires of the flesh, we end up in sin and fornication, which is how Esau ended up. That's a digression. I should get back to this list so that we finish it. I'm sorry. So, 8295, Sarat means to gash, and 8296, Sarat or Sarateth is an incision. And that gives us the Latin terms serratus, which is serrated, and the English word serrate. And I have saw here as well, which is a possibility, but I prefer the association that I made earlier with an earlier Hebrew word that we presented here this evening. I don't remember what it is off the top of my head, right? 8226, Safan, is to conceal as a valuable, S-A-P-H-A-N, and 5592 I included because I thought it was associated, is Sap, which is the Samak character, the soft C that we pronounce like an S, that's pronounced like an S, C-A-P-H, and that's a vestibule, but it can also be a dish for some strange reason. So Safin and possibly the Saf, which describes a vestibule, I believe the English word safe is cognate with these, even though I had also equated the English term safe to an earlier word. It's in list four. So Safin, to conceal as a valuable, certainly incorporates that sense of the English word safe, which is satin without the N. It's just the same word, with one letter short. The N, the final syllable, was dropped. 8242, SAC, S-A-Q, is a mesh, as allowing a liquid to run through. And that is exactly 
the same use as the Greek sacus and the Latin sacus, which can describe a bag, a pouch, or a bag for straining liquids, like a tea bag. And that, I believe, is the source of the English word sack, and also it, the, the English spelling sack, which is S-A-C. And that is also a bag for straining liquids, I believe. My internet connection is too slow for me not to move on. So, S-A-Q in Hebrew gave us sackus and, and our English word sack. 8256, Shakam, S-H-A-Q-A-M, or Shikma, S-H-I-Q-M-A-H, is the word, the Hebrew word for the sycamore tree. And, of course, that English sycamore tree, we could say that that's a loan word, right, from the Bible, or from Greek, because sycamorus is the sycamore tree in Greek, and sycamorus and shakam or shikma are basically the same word. The Greeks just put their own ending on it and and rearrange some of the vowels, which are always disputable in Hebrew anyway. So the fact that the Greeks use the same term shows that the Greek word is indeed cognate with Hebrew, and that the English, even though we could say it came from Greek, it ultimately came from the Hebrew, because that's where the Greeks got it from. That shows ancient affinities. It's All these cognates with Greek and Hebrew show ancient affinities with the Israelites of the Old Testament and the Greeks. 8319, Sharak. Sharak, S-H-A-R-A-Q, to be shrill i.e. to whistle or hiss, is the source of the English word shriek, to shriek. And, and that is not cognate with any Latin or Greek word. It had to come straight from Hebrew. 8337, that other number I spoke about, shesh, S-H-E-S-H, or shin, shin. That's how it's spelled. In Latin became sex. And in English, Six. Now, it may also, if the shin, if the first shin was evolved into an H instead of the SH, the Greek form for the letter six is hex. So it may also give us the Greek form for six, and I'm sure they are related, but I didn't include it here in, in this list. I purposely omitted it. The cognates with sex in Latin or six in English are striking enough. Now I have another group of four Hebrew words. 7896, sheath, S-H-I-Y-T-H, is to place something. 8356, shatha, is a basis. 8357, Shetha, is the seat, or buttock. And 8371, 
Shathath is to place or to lie. And if you only take the first syllable, you get the English words set, seat, sat, and sit. The Latin word sistere is to make stand. And cetus in Latin, I believe is also related to these Hebrew terms, means situated or lying. In other words, it's something that's placed or set that we see in Shathath and sheath. In Latin, we have cetus. So the shin became an S instead of an SH, and it's the same word. I also believe that the Greek verb histami came from these terms. It's a little different, but it's to make stand. And stasis is a standing. And stasis is very similar to these words. And the verb statizo, which means to place something. 8415, tahom, or tahom, T-E-H-O-W-M, or T-E-H-O-M, is an abyss, or the deep. And I believe they are the sources of the English word tomb, which is basically the same word with a B at the end. 8446, Tor, T-U-W-R, is to meander, or causatively to guide. Tor, and that's the English word Tor. It's also tourist comes from it, of course, as one who tours, or turn. Because when you turn, you meander. So it's the same word with an N added to the end in English. But it has the same meaning, and it's the same exact sound. Tor, turn. Tor in Hebrew means to meander. Or causatively, to guide, which is exactly how we use the English word tor. 8450, tor, T-O-W-R, is a bull. And... There's a shin word, which has the same, virtually the same meaning, 7794, sure, S-H-O-W-R, that would be shin vavresh, and tor would be tav vavresh, and the tor is a bull, and a shore is defined by Strong's as a bullock, but a bullock is a bull, I mean, come on. Greek, the Greek Taurus, or bull, and the Latin Taurus, or bull, both came from this Hebrew word tor, which is a bull. And they have a Greek ending on the end of it, the OS. And the English word steer, I believe, came from this word shore, which is a bullock. We have an ST sound instead of an SH, and we have a different vowel instead of an O. Steer and shore are the same word. And, of course, the English terms Taurus and Taurine came through the Greek and Latin, but from the same word Tor, which is a bull. 8458. Takbula is steerage. Takbula, T-A-C-H-B-U-L-A-H. Or sometimes transliterated because it has the the vav in it, T-A-C-H-B-U-W-L-A-H. But I'm only going to take the first syllable here. Takbula, which is steerage as management of ropes. It est, 
or in other words, I would say, guidance, or by implication, a plan, from this must have come the English word tack, from the first syllable of this word, which you tack, when you're tacking, you are sailing a boat by guiding, managing the ropes, and moving the sail. So it's the same word. It's just the first syllable. 8493. Tirea. T-I-Y-R-E-Y-A. And, and I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna look that up. We're, we're almost through our list. There's only a few entries left. I'm gonna have to look that up. I wanna see exactly how the Hebrew is spelled. Because very often Strong's adds he adds too many letters in in my opinion sometimes. Eighty four ninety three turn one more page. It's Tav, so it's T Yod T Y R Y A. So he didn't do too bad there. I I don't think it's fine. T I Y R E Y A. He really only added one vowel, that E, probably because that's what the rabbis did, their, their little vowel points. So Tyria means fearful. And in Latin, terere means to frighten. It's the same word. And it gives us the English word terror. And the word terrify comes straight from this Hebrew word, this ancient Hebrew word tirea, which is fearful. It's the same word as terror and terrify and terere. 8505, tacken, T-A-K-A-N, is to balance, i.e. measure out, because you measure things out on a balance, right? 8506, token, T-O-K-E-N, a fixed quantity, a measure or a scale. And that is the English word token, a coin which represents a fixed quantity or a fixed value. That is token. The English word token is right from that Hebrew word. 8496, tok or tok, T-O-W-K, depending on whether or not it has that vav, right? It's spelled either way, obviously, T-O-K or T-O-W-K is oppression or deceit or fraud and 8630 basically the same word with the suffix added to it is to overpower or prevail and that those words are the source of the English words take and took and in Old Norse, take is taka, T-A-K-A, so it's closer to takath. But take or took comes straight from these Hebrew words, tak and takath. Take is tak, which is oppression and is sometimes translated as defeat, deceit, or fraud. When you take something, you're oppressing the person that had it previously. 8500. And I could explain how this is not an ancient association. This is 
I believe, a loan word from the um, early period of English mercantilism in the Middle Ages, probably the 12, 13, 1400s, 1500s. 8500 is Tukey, T-U-K-I-Y, or sometimes spelled with the VAV, T-U-W-K-I-Y. And Strong says, probably a peacock. And that is the source of the English word turkey. But that is more or less a loan word. Because these large birds, I forget what they were. I, 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 I had this... I had this last week, and I did make a note of it somewhere. I forget exactly what bird it was, but it was a large game bird that was almost like an American turkey. And it was imported into England by the Jews from the country we know as Turkey. So I believe that the English named the bird and the country from the Hebrew word Tuki and that gave us Turkey, the country, because that's where those birds were imported from into England by Jews and those birds became quite popular in England in late Middle Ages and when the colonists came to North America, they saw a different large game bird, and they took that word, as the English used it to describe the birds from Turkey that were imported, and they applied it to the large game bird here in North America, and that's where our term for turkey comes through, comes from. But it is a loan word from the Jews who were importing those large birds across the Mediterranean into England. Yeah, I was just looking this up. Is that um, you have the 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 actual turkeys, the you know not chickens, but the actual species. They're only native to America, but there was um, a form of African guinea fowl, which That's it. That's it isn't a turkey, one. but it's quite similar. And that was called turkey. And and then when uh, Europeans came over to America, they confused. And, you know, an actual modern day turkey with that African guinea and just gave it the same name. And, yes. and that's why we call them turkeys today, right? Yes. And even though they're African guinea fowls, because that's the way they're believed to have originated, we don't even know that for sure. I mean, we don't know how birds were moved around the ancient world, but they seem to be native to Africa, the guinea fowl. And that's the name of the bird that I couldn't think of because I read all this about two or three weeks ago. And I made notes, but I don't remember exactly where I made the notes, so I didn't make them in, in, for this presentation necessarily. But the guinea fowl is, that's the bird that Jews were importing into England, but the English believed that they were being imported, whether or not they really were, is immaterial, from Anatolia, and they applied the name the, the Hebrew name of the bird to both the bird itself and to what we now know as turkey. That's why it's called turkey. After the bird that they believed was coming from there. So, I, I, I don't 
the Hebrew words or, that the Jews used seems not to have stuck in England itself, but it did stick to the North American turkey. So I don't know if a Jew actually named the turkey. I would rather think that an Englishman named the turkey after the word that was heard in England from the Jews that were importing those birds. That's my opinion. Okay, to move on so that we're not cooked like turkeys and we could finish this in three hours. No. 8,500. No, that's the word I just discussed. There's only two entries left. 8,524. Talal, T-A-L-A-L. And 8,530. Talpia, T-A-L-P-I-Y-A-H. And I'm sure that's a feminine form, is to pile up, talal is to pile up, i.e. elevate, and talpia is something tall, i.e. slenderness, and these have to be the source of the English word tall, had to come directly from these Hebrew words, and not through the Jews. 8535, the final entry in the list. <clears throat> Tam, T-A-M, is complete, usually morally pious, specifically gentle or dear. And that is the English word tame. So many of these words are certainly indisputably Hebrew words that we have in English. Because we descended from the ancient Israelites, not the Jews. They simply inherited yeah, the exactly. language. exactly. And even though they, uh, you know, tried to keep the language so they could keep up that they're, um, the Jews really, uh, they spoke Yiddish. It's only recently in the past century that they, um, you know, come up with trying to get all the Jews to um, use the Hebrew alphabet and move to the land, uh, you know, our former land of Israel. It's it's all basically just a deception to uh, create this mask and deceive us all. Absolutely. Well, once you get a grip on this, and, and this is 26 years ago. No, I'm a liar. 25 years ago. It's been 25 years this coming October. It'll be 25 years since I've embarked on this Christian identity journey. And the first thing I did, because I only had a couple of books, and I think I said that I told this story at the beginning of these four presentations. I had an American Heritage College Dictionary, and my cellmate had a strong concordance, and I had read these, these Christian identity books from several writers, who even may have stated that English has affinities with Hebrew. And I thought, well, if Christian identity is true, I could prove it to myself real quick just by looking at every word in Strong's Concordance and seeing if any of them are words that we have in English. And this list, I've made a few additions to it since, but this list is the result of that first Christian identity study I made, probably in in right after I first read 
my, my Bible, probably in very early 1998. Because the first thing I did, of course, was read the Bible cover to cover, the King James Version, to know what's in there, to know what it says. But I, I had the advantage of having read half a dozen Christian Danny books, so I read it from basically a, a pretty decent Christian identity perspective. So immediately after reading the Bible, this was my first study. And I was convinced when I was done with it that there certainly were a lot of Hebrew words in English. And therefore, since most of them, the, the vast majority of them were not loan words, that these connections these cognates must have come from very ancient history, which can only be explained by the fact that Christian identity is true. So that first study set me off on everything I've done ever since. And if I didn't find it, I probably would be writing computer programs right now. I swear. I'd have gone back to my So we've come full circle then if you started this 25 years ago and then we're back to where you've begun, right? Basically. <laughs> basically, that's true. But this language study alone is something that if I if I could afford to and, and had the support to focus on, I could probably spend another five years with it. It's in, in the, oh, okay, let's go and get an entire Hebrew lexicon and, and grammar, it, if we possibly can, so that we get all the forms of every word. And I would bet we'd find five or ten times more Hebrew in, in European languages than I found in this list, which only took me about two weeks maybe to do with a pencil and paper and a dictionary and a concordance. And I hadn't yet studied any Greek. I knew a little Latin from school and when I was 14 years old, I, I took a year of Latin in, in freshman year of high school. But, well, I knew a little Latin, but I, I don't really know a lot. I could never claim to read Latin, even if I understand a lot of words. But that the I hadn't studied Greek yet at all. So most of the Greek and Latin cognates that that I discovered are right from the American Heritage College Dictionary, right? But I have added a lot to the list. I probably added uh, I don't know, fifty words to the list and, and a lot of I've added a lot to pre existing entries since then. But I would love to be able to do it again one day. I don't know if that'll happen in this life. I'd have to live a long time. But I'd love to be able to do it again one day and with my knowledge of Greek that I have now and go through the entire Strong's Concordance again. But I might want to read through the Liddell and Scott lexicon first, and that's a thousand pages, just to refresh my my knowledge of Greek because it's been a while since I've seen many of those words, right? So I would want to refresh that and then give the concordance another look, right? And that would probably take months to do. That alone would take a couple of months to do, I would bet. But that's that that's a lot of people because they could look something up on Wikipedia, they don't appreciate what real scholarship requires. And only by doing 
studies like that? Do you actually learn what it takes? Like when you asked me about shaman, right? And and my first response to you was, I want to look at other candidates, right? Other candidate words, other candidate related words to see if there are there's a better candidate. And and that's you only understand that the need to do that when you have actually done the word studies and it takes um to to do proper a proper word study on a greek word when when i was translating when i was translating the new testament sometimes i would not be happy with ludellen scott's definition or or with strong's definition especially and I would look at Liddell and Scott and Thayer and Strong's, and and if I still wasn't happy with their definitions in in a certain context for certain New Testament words, because some of them are obscure, they don't appear very often, or they hardly appear anywhere else. So, so I would go to the Septuagint. I was blessed to have a Hatch and Redpath Concordance of the Septuagint, which is just like Strong's Concordance, but it's for the Septuagint Greek of the Old Testament. And it shows every occurrence of every word that appears in the Old Testament Greek. And you could get a list, like the verb kaleo, which is to call. And you could go to the Hatch and Redpath Concordance and look up that verb and find a whole long list of everywhere it's used, and I would read every single passage in Greek to see how the word was used before I translated it. So sometimes, with some words that occurred often, and I wasn't happy with the lexicon definitions, I would do that, and it would take hours just to study one word to see how I wanted to translate it in one verse. <clears throat> That's what... Maybe my results aren't perfect every time. I'm sure they're not. But in order to satisfy myself and my own mind, that's what I had to do sometimes. Not very frequently, but I bet I probably did it a couple dozen times in my translation. So, that's the effort that you have to put in if you really want to study. It's not just looking up some dumb shit on Wikipedia. I get people on Facebook that say they research something. They went on Wikipedia and read an article. That ain't research. (laughs) You didn't research a damn thing. (laughs) If you think that's research. That's the way it is. And, And it's probably... Like that in just about every discipline, every academic or scholarly discipline. Okay, that's my rant for the for the day. I don't know if you have anything else. No, I think that's it. Uh, we finally wrapped it up, and then uh, we can move on next week, right? Yes, we we have a few topics left. I, I could look at this document real quick. We have, um, this was proof, in my revised numbering, this was proof 97. And next I would like to speak about the Parthian role, and and this was actually your point, that this was, you gave this to me, and, and it is important, 
and we will explain why, the Parthian role and the Parthian interest in the events of Judea in the first century BC are, are um, very significant to understand in light of the identity of the ancient Israelites. And then we're going to talk about cultural appropriation. How the Magi really weren't Orientals from dark-skinned Orientals from India or Pakistan, and how there were none. None of the Magi were black, right? That that's an aspect of modern cultural appropriation, where it, it's kind of like I'm not going to call it cultural appropriation. I'm going to call it like reverse cultural appropriation, because it's not really. A, a, a nigger that came to Europe and, and said that there was a black Magi. It's white people who insisted on making one of the Magi black. So white people used the Negro to, to subvert their own culture. It's kind of like reverse cultural appropriation, I think, right? And that happened with the Magi when all of a sudden in, in the 1500s, I think it was, or the 15th century, some artists in Europe started creating, started representing one of the Magi in their paintings as being black. But that wasn't the way it always was. And, and there's another sense that there's sort of another <clears throat> reverse cultural appropriation which happened in Africa, in Ethiopia, if you look at all the really early Ethiopian church art, there are no black people in their church art. In, in the, the surviving paintings that are discovered in archaeology, which date to the 5th and 6th centuries before the rise of Islam, Right, because Islam forced everybody to become Muslim. Well, well, and and churches in Ethiopia, in ancient Ethiopia, if they weren't destroyed, they fell into decay. But there are no Negroes or blacks painted on the walls of those churches. There are no black apostles. They were all white, and they were represented as being white in ancient Ethiopian church art. But Modern Ethiopian churches are colonial. The Jesuits had gone in once the English began to dominate the African continent and, and Europeans started going on missions to Africa. The Jesuits went into Ethiopia. They started building churches and all the apostles in Ethiopia became niggers and Jesus became black. And that was the Roman Catholic Church and, and the Jesuits who were primarily responsible for that. Nobody in the 5th or 6th centuries would have believed that any of the Judeans were niggers. And I guess that's my final rant for this presentation. So we're going to talk about that. And, and we're going to talk about the archaeology. All of the archaeology which shows that the Judeans, all the way up to like the 6th century, had depicted themselves as being basically white and very often blonde or red-headed. And if that's how they portrayed themselves, even if all their portrayals aren't ideal, 
that must be how they saw themselves. And we'll discuss that. And then we have a few other items from archaeology to discuss. But they all stand as proofs that the original Israelites were white. And Christ was white. And the apostles were white. And it's only recently that the Jewish media and Jewish academia has sought to undermine white civilization and began to introduce these ideas that Jesus was a nigger or or some sort of brown, um, ethnically ambiguous squat monster or desert monkey or, or whatever term you want to use. Okay, that's my last rant for today. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Thanks for me, as always. We will praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of our European people. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. Good night.